So I do remember having this feeling uh, when I finally came to have a perspective on the United States in its broader global context, you know, understanding what other countries are like um, geopolitically, socially, culturally, as compared to the United States. I'd always been kind of one of those, I sort of had absorbed the idea that, you know, really all countries are equally evil, you know, uh, really you have an organizational structure and it's not to say that I would call for anarchy, not really, but there's always some inherent corruption. And because of that corruption, you can basically make an equivalence. All governments are bad governments because all governments are full of people who are corruptible. I learned too late in life that that is not only wrong, it's hopelessly wrong. And it's quite frankly, no better than being um, a doctor who does not believe in the germ theory of disease. But I realized that there is this weird aberration in a world that is always driven by power structures, monarchies, emperors. Sultans, <laughs> uh, in a world driven by all of these, we have this weird aberration of the United States, where individual liberty is privileged, where inherent natural rights to the individual are actually granted. They're a given. They're a presupposition to the whole idea uh, enshrined in the Constitution. Um, and I realized that really it has resulted, like the windfall of all of this, putting this political structure in place has led to a very, very peaceful, very, very prosperous, very, very spoiled society. And that's not natural. The state of nature, if you just removed all of the ideas that have built up civilization and just made human beings human beings, you would get the Congo. Life in the world, by default, is not what you see uh, growing up in Evanston, Illinois. Um, but I remember realizing this and being overcome with tremendous gratitude, understanding that for whatever reason, I was born in this country at a time when things were especially peaceful, when really there's nothing to fear. There are no real existential threats. And I happen to be born into a circumstance in which I was not struggling to figure out where my next meal is coming from. And I've never had that problem. And I realized it's, there is a culture, a broader culture that was bestowed upon me. There is a world that I have inherited that I did not have a hand in building, but I have benefited greatly from it. And as the old proverb goes, to whom much is given, much is required. And so the idea is, what am I going to do with this? But I think I, I had the same realization about a year later on a very, very local level. And this is a story that I've told before. If you've listened, you've heard it. But when I moved to San Francisco in the uh, fall of 2018, I chose, I chose a place that was very close to the Caltrain station because I was planning on commuting down to Sunnyvale or Mountain View 
to where I worked. So I chose a place that was very industrial, like it was in a very busy part of the city and it was a hub of public transportation. I could get anywhere from there, but it was in the south, the south uh, east corner of the city. And the east side of the city, the east side of the peninsula that San Francisco sits on, is the Embarcadero. And it's a very, very long boardwalk, very, very wide sidewalk that people jog down and bike down. And it has uh, storefronts. Pier 39 is on the north side of this uh, Embarcadero. Um, now, I assumed, I just kind of kept, in the first year or so that I was living there, I just kind of kept to the east side of the city. Uh, more specifically, the southeast area, like that quadrant. I really didn't go outside of there much. Like sometimes I would stray out to go to a specific landmark, but then I would turn around and come right back. It's because San Francisco is really, you have to figure out public transportation before you can get around, or you have to be willing to walk a lot. And I was willing to walk a lot, but not not all the way across the city of San Francisco. And I learned very quickly that driving is not an option because there is nowhere to park. Uh, San Francisco is, in brief, here's what I love about San Francisco. Um, when I go to a new city and I'm visiting, I'm always looking for the little downtown area, the little place that has the shops, you know, the bookstores and the coffee shops and maybe some bars. And, you know, there's kind of neighborhoods that people live in surrounding it, but it's this little hub of activity. It's the main street of the neighborhood. If you're lucky, you're in a town that has one of those because it has a nice vibe to it. San Francisco is a city that is comprised of perhaps 20 or 30 neighborhoods all sandwiched together next to each other in a grid. Um, and they all have one of these downtown areas. So you can just wander around the city. And the thing is, parking is not available because everywhere is in demand. People want to visit everywhere. It's not like you can park a block away or two blocks away from where you actually want to get to and then walk, there's just no parking anywhere unless you maybe use the power of prayer. Any case, um, so I didn't get around to the bulk of San Francisco until uh, maybe a year and a half into living there. And somebody told me, you really have to go over to the west side of the city. And I've mentioned this person before. Uh, she also was a volunteer tour guide. And she was a history aficionado. So she was uh, very into San Francisco history and was giving tours uh, um, as a volunteer on the weekends. And I thought that was terrific. And... I love the idea of, you know, there's there's history, like there's a culture that you are currently benefiting from that has been bestowed upon you. And it's not a bad idea to make sure that the legacy that led to that culture at least remains in people's general awareness. I don't think that hurts. Not something you have to make the focus of your entire life, but I think you appreciate where it is you are living more if you understand how the place you are living in came to be. 
one of the things I like about history is you are seeing people, if you study the history of the place you are living in, you are reading about people who were in the exact same situation you were in and confronting similar circumstances, but maybe a few generations removed. And if you see how they handled what was happening in their day in stride, you begin to realize that really we are no different, that the people who make it into the history books were just like us, but they did more or they operated more effectively, or they chose to go after bigger things. I like that idea. I'm rambling, but where I'm coming to is that eventually I, eventually I went over to Ocean Beach. This person told me go over there, so I remember I went, walked the length of Golden Gate Park, east to west, and it dumped out onto a three mile stretch of beach, which is called Ocean Beach, and I had no idea that was over there. I had, I had absolutely no idea. Apparently most of the San Francisco Peninsula, like where the city is now, that land used to just be sand. It was all just sand and dunes and it is not a place you would decide intentionally uh, to place a bunch of really tall buildings if you knew that there were really bad earthquakes in the vicinity. That's neither here nor there. But I remember, I remember feeling, I was just, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing to see that there was a beach, that there was like something like the Pacific Northwest, you know. Public transportation really doesn't go out there much. There are a couple of bus lines or trolley lines that run out there, but there's not many. You know, the east side of the city is pretty dense. You start going west, it loses population density pretty, pretty quickly. And by the time you get to the Pacific Ocean, it is, you wouldn't think you were in San Francisco unless you knew. But just north of Ocean Beach, there was a little landmark. Um, there was a fellow named Adolf Sutro, who was a very, very wealthy fellow who, I forget how he made his money, but he bought up some very, very expensive land over there. He has a... Uh, there are ruins um, of a little garden that he built overlooking the ocean, which now overlooks uh, Ocean Beach, uh, Sutro Heights. That is definitely a must-see um, place if you're going to be in San Francisco. Um, but Sutro set up a bathhouse right on the water, and it was... I don't exactly know what a bathhouse is or who used to go to them or why. Like, I, did people not have baths in their homes in the 1920s, 30s? I'm not even sure when it was operational. It was early 20th century. Yeah, what is a bathhouse for? People really just need, need to bathe. I think it was like, it was, it was definitely a recreational thing. Like it was far removed from where most people were living. To get out to that side of the city, people had to like take a trolley, uh, that would run along what is now the south side of Golden Gate Park. And it was, it was a trek to get out there. You know, you have to trolley in and trolley out. You know, people didn't have cars then. Um, so yeah, it was a recreational thing, but I don't know what people did for recreation at a bathhouse. If you started asking me what's being done recreationally at a bathhouse, I think my mind would end up in the gutter pretty quickly. But in any case, I saw the ruins 
of sutro baths. You can see these. They're right on the Pacific, just north of uh, Cliff House. And I remember thinking, yeah, there is there is a whole past here. And there's this whole story that's playing out, and it was playing out long before I got here. And it will keep playing out long after I leave, and I'm just kind of stewarding some part of it, interacting with some part of it, manipulating some part of it in the brief time that I have here. It's one of those moments where you kind of behold the infinite. You behold something whose scope is just beyond you, or at least it's beyond your default understanding, your default mindset, and it kind of throws you and jars you a bit. You know, um, I'm now living in Colorado, right at the foothills um, of the Rocky Mountains, so half a mile west of where I live. There's a trail that starts that starts going up into the Rocky Mountains. Um, now, if you pull back and look at the city from afar, like there's a scenic outlook um, on the highway uh, that comes out to the city uh, west from Denver. And if you pull off, you can see the Rocky Mountains, this panoramic expanse of just gigantic peaks as far as you can see. And it's absolutely splendid. But it's a stark reminder that you're, you're looking at something that is playing out on a geological time scale. These mountains were formed, I forget how many millions of years ago, and they're just gonna keep you know, evolving and mutating the way mountains do very, very slowly. And so there is the temporal sense of insignificance. And then there's also the, 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 the scale of it, the fact that there is this gigantic expanse of mountains that are just filled with wilderness. And if you went out there, you could end up somewhere where you wouldn't be able to find your way back to civilization. Like it's just the scale of it visually is breathtaking. And so it, it is this kind of sense of you're looking into something that is not infinite, but so on such a larger time scale than we are used to dealing with day to day that it is practically infinite. It feels like you're staring into something. There, there is a kind of transcendence you feel. There was an idea that Carl Jung had, and he said that the unconscious, the, the part of our brain that we can't access consciously, but kind of operates autonomously blow our awareness and feeds us dreams and sometimes feeds us creative, creative ideas and, and such like the latter, that it really didn't experience time. Not the way that the conscious mind experiences time. Like the conscious mind has to be aware of its surroundings. It's constantly scanning the environment for threats. That's kind of its job. This is what you're, you know, you know that person that you're identifying with right now? Uh, the person inside your head who's talking to you, uh, that is your radar system. That is just an evolutionary adaptation that uh, allows you to maybe survive better um, because you're ever vigilant to threats from the environment. That's one theory. 
I actually like this theory. I think that comes from Alan Watts. Um, but of course, you can't identify yourself with your consciousness because then you'd have an anxiety. You know, that's the whole point. You're looking for threats and you'll find threats. You are wired to find threats where there aren't any because it's better to do that than to fail to identify a threat. How in the hell did I get here? Anyway, yes, so you have the conscious mind and you have the unconscious. The unconscious doesn't need to experience time. It doesn't need to experience causality. It doesn't need to understand that there was this moment and there's a moment coming next. And it's just this kind of stack of cards that's animating itself because it's flipping so fast. It looks like motion. Um, it, oh, the unconscious mind doesn't need to have that conception. And so it's not really aware of time the way we are aware of time. And so there is a part of us deep down that we can't really access directly, but we can sense and we get fed imagery from it that doesn't really have a sense of time. And so something like that, an experience of that, a connection with that would make you feel like you were touching something timeless, something that would feel immortal. And so I think that if that is all true, that could be the psychological basis for belief in the soul. But it's an interesting idea. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's like peering into infinity. You know, I, I don't remember how I got on this original originally. Um, oh, history. That's right. San Francisco. Yeah, so it's kind of like that. It's kind of the realization that there is this big thing that's bigger than you. And no one person owns it. It's just this collective energy. And the thing is, I, I always had an inclination to collect books, but not to acquire collectible books. But one thing I realized when I became obsessed with San Francisco, I wanted to learn all about it. I wanted to, I wanted to become a tour guide, like a volunteer city guide that specialized in Golden Gate Park. And, but I wanted to learn about every aspect of the city. I wanted to see what, what grabbed me, if anything, was more interesting. And going around and looking at, you know, Santa, San Francisco history books, in San Francisco bookstores, you found a lot of stuff. And a lot of it was old books that were aggressively out of print. Well, the one that I would recommend San Francisco history would be Oscar Lewis, um, is the author. The title of the book is San Francisco Mission to Metropolis. And that starts with the founding of the mission uh, through the 1940s. And the book was published in the 1960s, I believe. So it covered the existing uh, time span. But it's very, very good. It's very, very tongue-in-cheek. It's very witty at times. It's, um, it's good history. It's accurate history. But it doesn't read like dry history. And it's interesting. It covers all the important phases of San Francisco. But that one has been out of print for probably 50 years. Um, but the thing is, I noticed that there are a whole lot of books like this. There's a whole lot of San Francisco history books that you can't find them unless you happen upon them in uh, like a bookstore. Maybe you find one on Amazon. Maybe somebody lists one on eBay. But there's a whole bunch, there's a whole volume of stuff out there that is just old and due to lack of interest, they've been out of print for a very, very long time. Like when I, 
I remember like when I was a teenager, I always remember like books always seemed like they were permanent. Like I would have a book like by Stephen King. I'd be like, okay, I like this book, but I don't have to keep it because I can always reacquire the same book at a later time if I happen to want it, you know? And I've noticed with some things that I have gotten rid of over the years that I want to see them again, but it turns out you can't get a hold of them. Like enough time has passed, like 20 years or so. It's just, it's just out of print and there's maybe a bunch of copies in landfills. People got rid of them. People donated them. They've ended up in random places and um, there's not necessarily an incentive for people to find these things and list them uh, for sale online. Just have to get lucky and hope that somebody's selling off a house full of stuff for some reason. Um, so I, I kind of understand that if you have something and you value it and it's a kind of a rarity, um, like don't count on things being around forever. It's not an excuse to hoard. <laughs> Maybe it is a little bit. But, um, but so I kind of caught this bug. Like I wanted to go around and get all of the collectible rare, uh, books about San Francisco history. And it's because I realized like reading some of those old books, you know, reading some of the ones I happened across that are rare. I was like, there are stories in here. There are narratives. There are pieces of history that are articulated in here that I, I'm willing to bet no other history book has covered. There's probably a lot of them. You know, maybe it's on, maybe it's, you know, the original records that the, produced the book are there somewhere, but the interpretation, you know, the story that's put together based on the historical records that are left behind that the historians produced, that, that eventually gets lost. It always gets lost, like every book does eventually. Nothing lasts forever. So unless people take an active interest and seek out these sorts of things, um, these ideas are, I mean, they, they fall by the wayside. They just sort of get lost. And then new stories come along and replace them. There are new historical accounts uh, that tell the same stories. Well, not all the same stories, but stories that are more pertinent to the generation reading them at the time. But I wanted the stories that would, were lost, that are almost lost to history, but not quite. Because if I was going to be a volunteer city guide, I wanted to have, I wanted to tap into as many potential sources of interesting San Francisco stories as possible, not just one or two sources that everybody reads anyway. Um, but yeah, since I moved to Colorado, I am living in Boulder, actually. Um, I guess I haven't really brought... Yeah, it's been a while since I did one of these things. I'm not even sure I'm going to publish this one in particular. But yeah, I, I left Detroit... What's the chronology? Last time I published one of these was late April. A couple days after I published my last episode, I got the notice that I could sign up for a vaccine. Within a week, I had gotten the first round. Three weeks later, mid-May, shortly before my birthday, um, got a second round. And so mid-June, I left. 
I resolved to head back out to California. And I decided to make a long trip of it. And so I decided to hit one city a week. You know, I still had to work. So I thought I'll travel on the weekends, but set myself up in a hotel or an Airbnb each week and just do this for a while until I get bored of it and I get back to San Francisco or, well, we'll see what happens. So I went to Austin and then New Orleans and then Albuquerque and then Boulder, Colorado. Now, I've been to Boulder, Colorado twice before. I went in the summer of 2018, and I stopped here for a night passing through in May of 2019. And both times, I was kind of like, at the end of the trip, I was like, you know, there are just so many things to do here that I didn't get a chance to do. It's right next to the mountains. There's a whole bunch of mountain stuff going on. There's like, uh, you know, rope courses through trees there's zip lines people are skiing up there there's all kinds of stuff going on and i was like i would love to do some of this stuff whitewater rafting paddling you know um i was like i think i would just love to be here to just be here but i was kind of like okay i guess i work in San Francisco and live in San Francisco. So I will go back there because I have to work and I need to make money so I can buy food. Ah, so, um, I arrived in Boulder for a week in early July. And at the end of that week, I decided not to leave. I instead, uh, went out, and found a place to live and signed a lease and got the place set up the first weekend that I was here. Unloaded my car and furnished it with uh, maybe $150 worth of stuff from Goodwill, you know, fully stocked kitchen. <clears throat> uh, yeah, and slowly populating with furniture. But that was a nice little trip. <clears throat> I also stopped in Memphis I spent a few hours in Dallas. Um, for, for one, Austin is beautiful. Austin was hopping. There was, there was a ton of things happening in Austin. Like that is a vibrant, crazy city. Go downtown, you know, the 6th Street District, go uh, see the, uh, the, uh, bats off the Congress Street Bridge. It is, it is crazy. I, I learned, uh, only after getting there that apparently Joe Rogan moved his podcast there. And I was like, okay, that might be, you know, everybody's running the hell away from Los Angeles. You have a bunch of celebrities doing it. And uh, Austin seems to be a prime destination of choice for all of them. So naturally, um, people will follow. But I, I think it's, it's, you know, not just a lemming mentality. It really is a beautiful city. And the barbecue there is phenomenal. I don't know how many pounds I gained while I was uh, there. Uh, but I, I was not shy about Austin was the first city I was visiting coming out of COVID hibernation. It was the first time I was actually out on the street amidst a ton of people uh, pouring in and out of bars um, who were not wearing masks and who were very, very close to one another, not social distancing at all. 
And I was like, yeah, this is what it's like. This is normal. I mean, usually you're not, uh, there's not a whole bunch of drunk people in bars, but being out on the street and going into restaurants and eating and not having a mask on for all of this. It had been well over a year since I had uh, done that. So that was, that was, that was me experiencing that for the first time. I think we all have our story, you know, the moment when it first hit us, like this whole COVID thing that locked us down and incidentally led to the creation of this podcast singularly. Suddenly it was over. Suddenly we went out and did this thing and uh, suddenly we were with people and acting in a way that was passive would pass for normal. And it was a great feeling. Um, Austin's a beautiful city. And if it hadn't been so hot, if I hadn't been visiting it just on the cusp of July, it was balls hot. It was crazy. Um, it felt like, like, I was like, okay, it's definitely Texas. Like I'm not far from Mexico with this sweltering heat. And I was like, I, I, I'm not quite ready to commit to this. This is beautiful. And honestly, Austin is a city I could make work. Someday, if I'm looking around the country for jobs, if I find a position in Austin, I would take it and move out there in a heartbeat. Definitely can make that city work for me. Um, New Orleans was the one I did next. Now, that was an interesting little town. Uh, I actually booked a house in Airbnb not knowing exactly where it was, but it was an Airbnb in Treme, which I think I have only ever heard of that neighborhood because of the television show, but it is a very ethnic neighborhood uh, in New Orleans, just uh, northwest of the French Quarter. French Quarter is, of course, when you're talking about visiting New Orleans as a tourist, that's where you go. You're talking about Bourbon Street, uh, which is that, you know, the row of bars that's, uh, um, that's the street that's shut down from traffic, you know, when it gets late at night on the weekends. Uh, people are just in the street. It's a pedestrian-only uh, section. But you know you're in the French Quarter when you hit it. As soon as I wandered into it by accident my second day there, I was like, okay, this is what everybody comes to New Orleans to see. Because the way the houses look is very, very distinct. If you're interested, Google image search French Quarter, New Orleans. Probably just French Quarter. And you'll see that the... I don't know how much of the architecture is original. I honestly didn't study it too much, but I loved being amongst it. It was a, uh, it was nice. Right on, uh, right on a river, I think, bayou. So it's like on a waterfront. Um, and there's other things around. Uh, but Treme was, um, Treme was interesting. I went out in jogging clothes with a bunch of neon shit on them. You know, like it, it's, Typical white guy going running. Um, and I was walking through Treme and I think I stuck out like a sore thumb because I passed by groups of guys, all of whom were black. And they would turn to look at me and said, Hey, what's up? You know, um, you get that. I, I can't really do it. I'm not going to try and imitate it, but sometimes you start getting that from strangers in a tone of voice and it's kind of like their way of saying to you, so you're not from around here, are you? Because this is, you clearly don't fit. I'm being friendly, but I'm calling that out to you. That was the vibe I was getting from this. So uh, 
it was an interesting experience. Uh, I actually didn't have any trouble in Treme. There was a, 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 I did have an encounter with a gentleman, um, not too far from the French Quarter that I think was a little sketchy. I might have uh, narrowly averted being robbed, but I won't go into that because who wants to talk about that sort of thing? Uh, New Orleans was was great, and I enjoyed the French Quarter. I kind of drove around the rest of the city, like I was like, let's see what the non-tourists are living with. You know, what's their day-to-day like? What are they driving through? And it's, it's very, very lush, very, very green. You know, there actually is like, I noticed when I got to Louisiana, I started noticing that there are swamps that are named after people. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Dillinger Swamp. Named after somebody named Dillinger. I doubt I'm going to leave this world with anything named after me, but if, if at all possible, I would rather it not be a swamp. Uh, in any case, uh, I, yeah, so I went around. It's very, very lush, very, very green. You know, you, you, those trees that have like hanging things, like they, they have way more greenage that flops down way further. Those, whatever those trees are called, very, very lush, very, very green. It's, it's, I decided it wasn't the kind of place I wanted to live. Unless I was going to live in the French Quarter, which Quite frankly, no, I wouldn't live in tourist Mecca uh, in any uh, city. But anyway, New Orleans is great, and there's definitely history there. If you want to like read history, there is a Herbert Asbury book called uh, The French Quarter. He's the one who also wrote The Gangs of New York and uh, The Barbary Coast about the more lascivious days in San Francisco's history. Uh, he always writes very, very colorful history. It's old history written in the 30s, so can't speak to how accurate it is, how its accuracy has held up over time, but they're always very entertaining. Um, and New Orleans has very, very storied history. If you're gonna pick, if you're gonna pick cities to write about, you know, write histories about, uh, New Orleans is a terrific one. It's, um, very colorful, a lot of material you can tap into, and it's not that hard to make it interesting and engaging. Uh, after that, I kind of, as you can tell, I'm not really planning this because I'm headed towards California. I go to Austin, and New Orleans is east uh, of Austin, so I was actually backtracking away from California in order to get to New Orleans. So if you've been paying attention, you've realized I'm not planning this out. I'm kind of winging it. So I kind of looked it around and said, what is a day or two's drive away from New Orleans? Where can I go next? That might be an interesting place to see. And I really didn't find much. Uh, I had been to Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas, the few hours I spent there, I realized it is a... You need a car to live there. Every single part of it that I drove through, and I drove through quite a bit of it, it is very, very sprawled, and it's just you're driving all over the place. I don't, I didn't come across a single walkable area. It's just this massive metropolitan area that uh, it feels like you're in. I wouldn't even say Los Angeles because at least Los Angeles has neighborhoods where there's some character and space, you know, and some breathing room. This was, I just felt like there were highways and overpasses everywhere. It was all strip malls and and houses and golf courses and beautiful city but you know after a couple hours there i was like 
I would never live here. This is not my style at all. Uh, if I can avoid it anyway, you know, uh, God willing, as they say. Um, but I was like, most of the cities in Texas, I don't think I need to see. I think Austin was probably, I'm not going to top Austin for Texas. Austin was perfect. I really didn't want to go any farther east. And so I settled on Albuquerque because I was kind of like, well, there's, if Breaking Bad was there, I really liked that. Better Call Saul is filming there. And of course, you just have to hope that maybe you're walking down the street and like some car pulls up to you and the window comes down that says, excuse me, are you an actor? Because we need this, we need to cast this part that we're filming. Um, and you would be perfect for it. Uh, I feel like since, since Better Call Saul has started, uh, I don't know, has started filming, every Breaking Bad fan has kind of flocked there with that, uh, to sort of hope. Maybe. Maybe I'll get to see them filming something. Maybe I'll get to be in it. Um, not really. Honestly, I was kind of like, I'd like to see the city because it sure was made appealing. As like a little desert community with like the Navajos, uh, you know, kind of influence. It looks like a town I might really, really like. I like, uh, the West feel, you know, I, I can deal with the heat in some circumstances. It just, it, it depends. Um, and so I actually spent a night in Santa Fe. That's where I spent the 4th of July and then drove down into Albuquerque, um, and spent the week there. And that was not bad. Uh, I was down by Central. And it, um, this was perfect. Now there was 6th Street in Austin. That's, they close off traffic, so it's pedestrian only. Then there was Bourbon Street in New Orleans. In, uh, in Albuquerque, it's Central. On Friday and Saturday nights, uh, if there's something going on on Central downtown, they will, you know, block off six or seven blocks. And, uh, there's an art fair, I think on, I think it was on Friday. Uh, but very, very hopping, very nice communal event. And so I checked that out, you know, um, drove around the outlying areas, like was kind of like, okay, if you live in Albuquerque, what's this like? Go up to the North Valley, kind of drive around. And uh, it was nice. I probably wouldn't seek out living there, but I wouldn't turn it down either. I think I might consider it. Anyway, I had the same problem when the week in Albuquerque was up. And so I was like, okay, Boulder. Uh, that seems to be like the one city that's like within driving distance. And I know that I would enjoy being there for a week. I was looking around like Fort Collins. Um, there's a bunch of cities over on the west side of the state. Grand Junction, I wanna say. There's a whole bunch of cities I looked at and I thought, these look like nice little mountain towns and the real estate there looks very, very affordable. So I, I, I was very, very inclined to go check one of those out. In the end, I was like, you know, just you're trying to enjoy yourself. Go visit Boulder because you know you'll love spending a week there. And so I did. And this time, um, at the end of my third visit, I decided not to leave. And so I do miss San Francisco. Um, as much as it should be obvious, I guess that's how I started this whole thing, but I, I do miss it. I look forward to going back to it. You know, I, I'm, I think a lot of people moved away from it 
around the time I did, and they were kind of like good riddance, you know. Life is finally shifting. Our culture is shifting. The ability to work remotely is now being more widely embraced, and it will probably just stay that way in perpetuity for a lot of folks. And so I think a lot of people said, well, screw it. I didn't really want to move to San Francisco. I was kind of forced to due to my work. And now that I have the opportunity to leave, good riddance. And I, I think if I had been, if in December of 2019 I, that it happened, if I had been forced to leave San Francisco, I probably would have felt that way. It would have been sour grapes. Like, yeah, you know, you sucked anyway. Um, not until I, yeah, went over to Ocean Beach and then I realized I love this place and it is, there's a definite return. There's something you get for the premium you pay for living here. So I do miss it. And there's, I've only been in Boulder living here now for about three weeks. Um, so I haven't quite adjusted. My, my, I think my brain is kind of confused. It's like we were in San Francisco and really enjoying it. And then suddenly we were holed up. And then suddenly we're back in Detroit living in a house with your parents. Then we went around all over the place, like zigzagged around the United States. And now you're in this uh, two-bedroom condo in Boulder. What's going on here? What is the plan? What trajectory is this putting? I think my, my brain is just confused. It's like I'm trying to project ahead and figure out exactly where it is we are going with all of this. And there's not a clear picture that emerges. There's not a way of connecting the dots. Please forgive me if I hydrate. I'm not a professional. I do wonder about this. I always open up this podcast with the same spiel, which is to say that I began podcasting only because of COVID. And really there were, there were a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one of the main ones that I always mention is the fact that I was really looking for something to keep myself occupied. And I found that talking through things uh, for hours at a time on at great length with the intent of putting it out there so that other people might potentially hear it was actually a very therapeutic thing to do with this whole we're suddenly locked up and can't go outside except for food um, situation. But more than that, it's that all of us were suddenly looking in the same direction. We were all laser focused on the same stuff. The thing is, culture has become very, very fragmented. People are kind of in their own worlds. I read an article recently that said, like, the era of the hit TV show, show is over. So there was a time when everyone was watching The Simpsons or everyone was watching the American version of The Office. You know, that was the water cooler show. We've actually become so fragmented that that's probably not a real possibility anymore. It's not something that networks can count on. Content providers can't hope to produce a show that will garner a general audience so that it's a show that everyone talks about. People find their little niches and then they find the people that like those niches and it's... So I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. 
a thing. Anyway, with the pandemic, all of a sudden we're all shut in and we're all watching the same news and every single news station is covering the exact same thing in about the same way. And so suddenly we're all attuned and all watching. We're all paying attention and it's all homogenized. That's a very, very weird thing to have happened on a very, very global scale to all of us. So all of a sudden we're all looking in the same direction. And I don't really like expounding on my political philosophies, but suddenly we were all focused on politics out of necessity. We were in an aberrant situation and a return to normal depended on the efficacy of our political leaders. How well do they carry this sort of thing out? And so all of a sudden, yeah, we're all paying attention and we all have a stake in this thing. And so we all have an opinion all of a sudden. And so I thought, you know, everybody is focused on this. Generally, I don't think anybody would give a two shits what I have to say about politics. But I was like, right now, everyone is focused on politics. So if I start podcasting and if people start listening, I wasn't really worried about that. But I wanted it to be something that people would listen to. And I was like, you know, right now, someone might. My views on you know, politics are not general interest under ordinary circumstances, but under extreme circumstances, I felt I wouldn't mind uh, throwing my hat in the ring and expressing a few things. But anyway, those circumstances seem to be largely behind us right now as I'm talking in, what the hell is it? August, it is August of 2021. So we are about a year and a half out from the start of this thing. As I'm talking though, the, uh, Excuse me, the Delta variant is currently on the rise. That's something that people are monitoring. That could be a problem. It's looking right now like we're not quite out of the woods, but it's, it may be that there's going to be another lockdown uh, this fall or winter if things progress. Um, chances are good that they will. So who knows what's going to happen? Uh, this was part of my impetus for not returning to San Francisco yet. I have a year lease in Boulder, and I may choose not to leave Boulder ultimately, but after a year I can assess, do I still miss San Francisco? And um, that's a year removed from the pandemic. Um, on the off chance that the Delta virus surges back, and I think there's a good chance that it will, I would rather not be living in some major urban area like San Francisco again when it happens. Boulder's a lot more, there's a lot more green that is immediately accessible uh, that you can access and enjoy and use and easily social distance. It is a very, very green place and accessible to nature. So if, uh, if I have to hole up for a year in isolation, uh, I will have no problem with that uh, here. I still have not cut my hair as well. So we are coming up on two years. It is now down past my shoulders. It is ridiculous. I feel like people just turn and look at me because there's not that many people walking around with hair like this anymore. It looks strange. And I haven't figured out how to take care of it. I think I mentioned this last time. Like I have this long hair now, but I don't want to commit to it. I don't want to learn how to like use a hair straightener or a curling rod or... I don't even know what you're supposed to use. I, don't, I can't even like enumerate some more things as examples. I don't, 
And I don't, I don't care to know. I don't want to commit to the hair as in I'm going to keep it around forever. Um, yeah, okay, now I'm talking about my hair. This is definitely not general interest. Anyway, all this to say, the whole reason I started this podcast, it, it seems to me that the time and place that led to its creation, those circumstances are really a thing of the past. They're a relic. And that made me and I decided to stop doing this. I like the format. I see the potential in the format, particularly if you put something nice together. Um, it would be, it would be nice to attempt to do that. I have thought about if you were going to produce nice podcast episodes that covered things somehow, uh, what, uh, what could they be? You know, how could you structure them? And it's kind of like somebody, somebody decided to start doing fiction. Like, let's just have sound recordings that are characters talking and telling stories. And maybe there's narration, or maybe you can just tell a story through dialogues that has no narration. Uh, Welcome to Night Vale is, I think, the major one. Uh, I, I've, I listened to one episode of that and my mind was otherwise occupied and I, I didn't understand what in the hell was going on. Like, I think I, if, if I ever tried to take it seriously, I'd go back and listen to three or four episodes. It's like, I think to get a sense of whether or not you want to continue with something, you have to, it really bugs me when people start watching a t- TV show and they watch like of the pilot, maybe they, they get to the end, maybe they don't, but they're like, yeah, I'm not really enjoying this. And I was like, this, this is setting something up. You don't even know where this is going yet. You don't know what the pace of this is going to be. Uh, you don't know if you know, it's going to take some time for the characters, um, the actors playing the characters to develop to the point where it's actually falls into a groove and there feels like there's a rhythm. Um, can't really judge a show based on that. I don't think. But in any case, yeah, um, I do wonder exactly how how one could put together. Um, I think it would like to be educational, but then I don't know how you make that interesting. You know, people are not going out listening to uh, like I'm going to go listen to a science podcast. Maybe they are. I'm not really much of a consumer of random podcasts. Uh, I listen to some of the larger ones and I follow some certain public intellectuals around when they go on the circuit, but I don't just go looking for a podcast about anything. Somebody told me about a podcast called Ologies. Somebody I used to work with, really, really sharp guy, really, really interesting guy. And Ologies basically week after week, uh, the host of the show, who's, I believe a scientist or at the very least a science journalist. She's got to be a scientist. Anyway, she has a scientist in some weird specialty niche field uh, every single week, and they talk about that subject. So there's, I'm trying to think of it, like, there is something ologist, which is a person who studies clouds. And the name would totally make sense. Anyway, people who study bats, people who study, like, 
I don't know, vibrations and crystals, but whatever, whatever it is, whatever scientific field, and genuinely scientific fields, not this new age crystal crap, but, um, that's really interesting. That, that is one I would, I would highly recommend if you're interested in like science education and just encountering new ideas that are, uh, you know, just close enough to the mainstream to be interesting, but, uh, fringe enough that there's, they expose you to something new and alien that throws your worldview. Yeah, anyway, that's the end of my sales pitch there. I'm not being compensated for any of this shit. Uh, so, um, you can trust me. You can trust my opinion. Uh, yeah, so anyway, where I'm living in Boulder, I'm very, very close to the university. Uh, actually, I'm very, very close to the student housing, like a couple, couple blocks away. Um, this is the start of the, the, you know, the area that serves as student housing. It's, uh, less, uh, well-maintained, uh, clearly a bunch of apartment buildings and frat houses and, uh, old dilapidated houses that are currently housing as many people as code will permit. Um, and they're all students. Anyway, it is getting to be late August. So of course school starts up on Monday. And so this element, I've never actually encountered before. My last two visits in Boulder were in the summer and it was when school was out of session. I am now going to experience this city for the first time as school comes back to the session. I don't know exactly what, uh, what I'm going to do with that. I'm not sure I'm going to do anything. I'm kind of curious how it will affect my day to day. You know, there's, um, like the, the stores that are uh, close by that I frequent, um, it's close enough to the university and the student population that I think I'm going to see, uh, probably some more foot traffic. Uh, but uh, you know, great. Bring it on. You know, I don't really care. Uh, somebody asked me recently, like, Oh yeah. So what do you think about living in a college town? How do you like college people? And I thought about it and I was like, earnestly, uh, I don't care about those people. They're, they're, it's not like, not like I would be a, an asshole to them, but they're not on my radar. I, I don't, I wouldn't notice them unless they put themselves on my radar. Don't uh, care. I'm not, I'm not going to learn anything from these people. Um, if they want my help with something, they can ask and, uh, and we'll see. But I have no reason to communicate with them. So really, I, I don't pay attention. <laughs> However, um, where was I going with that? It's getting late. My brain is starting to fade. But um, but yeah, I was actually out jogging, like the jogging route that I've started to use in the evenings uh, goes through the student housing and goes uh, along a stretch that runs between the university and the student housing. And... And there were like house parties going on. So there's like, you can see, like you can look and see into the living room and it's just a whole bunch of black lights and uh, some swirling things, loud music playing. You can hear the bass music playing inside the house. The doors are all closed, but it sounds like maybe there's a speaker outside. That's how loud music is inside of the house. And I was like, I think this is gonna happen. This is gonna be welcome weekend. This is going to suddenly be a thing. 
that I live very close to. Um, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, the student housing is actually not that far. Like it's there's there's blocks where it's student housing, and then there are regular Boulder residents who are just living normal adult lives, and uh, those houses like all houses in Boulder are exceptionally expensive. Uh, so um, I don't know how, there's gotta be some tension there. But anyway, I remember I was thinking, you know, I'm not gonna do this, but it's really too bad that I can't go into these parties. You know, like I, I'm not even, I don't wanna be friends with these people, but like just the interaction, like, I know I just said I don't care about, I don't care to meet college students on the street um, talking about random stuff, you know, but going into a party and like just observing the dynamic, like there's some entertainment to people watching that environment. Um, but I was like, I can't really do that because I'm like 39 years old. If you're 39 years old, you can't just go start crashing university parties at colleges. I wouldn't even want to do that. The thing is, like, the, the thought occurred to me, the sort of half-hearted desire. Um, and it wasn't even like I really desired it. It was just like an idea. And I was like, yeah, because I can't do it, because it's now forbidden to me, I kind of want to do it. It's like the forbidden fruit, fruit day sweet. Uh, that whole thing. But then I got that old children's song in my head, which I don't know the lyrics to, but it's something like, you know, um, uh, talking about... Uh, great green gobs of greasy, grimy gopher guts, mutilated monkey meat. All this disgusting. Great green gobs of greasy, grimy gopher guts, mutilated monkey meat. Little itty bitty baby's feet. All these things are floating down the muddy street, and I forgot my spoon. Sorry for the off key towards the end there, but that the whole sentiment of realizing that there's this uh, river of filth going down the street and you don't have your spoon, like the thought that you would want to eat it as kind of a punchline. That's kind of what the thought of wanting to go to college parties uh, felt like to me. You know, it's kind of like, the thing is, you don't have your spoon. I'm approaching middle age, so of course I can't go into a college party, but the thing is, where there's a will, there's a way. Even if you don't have your spoon, you could find something that would act as a spoon and you could start eating. But the thing is, where there's a will, there's a way. If you wanted to, you could find your way into these college parties, but why in the hell would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that to yourself? Why waste your time? So that was a thought that occurred to me while I was out jogging um, earlier today. Anyway, I gotta say, I love the rain here. Uh, the thing is, living next to a mountain, the rain just kind of shows up. It just peeks its head in, uh, maybe for an hour in the afternoon, an hour in the evening. Not every day, but, you know, it's once a day, uh, occasionally it'll just, you know, come in, lightly sprinkle, and then move out. You know, it's something to do with the, uh, you know, um, mountain air being forced up. Uh, causes precipitation to occur. I don't, I don't, I don't understand meteorology as much as I, uh, would like to. I certainly, if I'm, if I'm gonna learn Boulder, I want to learn how local geology affects meteorology, but I don't know how those two things interact. All I know is that it's, there's a nice refreshing rain fairly often, and it is great. Anyway, 
How are you doing out there? I've been talking about myself this whole time. But of course, you must not be sick of hearing it because if you're still listening, then you you would have turned, you had plenty of opportunities to get sick of this and turn it off before this point. So on the off chance you are still listening, hey, got to hand it to you. Um, I hope you're doing well. I hope you have achieved some semblance of normal. I hope you're staying ahead of the Delta variant. Uh, I hope you were vaccinated. If you want to be, if you don't want to be vaccinated, uh, okay, cool. <laughs> uh, don't cough on me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm actually glad that this may, uh, come to an end. Uh, because it means that life is back to normal. It means we can start doing other things. I look forward to uh, tubing. Uh, going and uh, I'm not sure I'm going to try skiing, but I definitely want to try snowshoeing. Snowshoeing sounds like, as much as I love hiking and walking, uh, doing it with like some fancy gear and snow uh, in the mountains just sounds like... Um, well, it's the middle of summer and it's beautiful out right now, but just the thought of trying that makes me anxious for it to be, to become winter. I really am curious what Christmas is going to be like here. I always, I think it's going to be great. You know, um, the downtown stretch I live fairly close to is, uh, kind of like State Street in Santa Barbara, which is a little main stretch. And it's, um, that was always a lot of fun at Christmas time. I will never forget my first Christmas in Santa Barbara. There was a uh, Christmas parade mid-December. And it was just, it was very, very weird being in a California town. And there's, everything is Christmassy, but there's palm trees and the weather is nice. You can be outside. There's no snow. People are not scraping ice off of their cars. And in the parade, there was a celebrity guest. Like, I think it was a surprise there's going to be some celebrity towards the end of the parade who's waving to people from a car. And it ended up being the actor who played Kevin, the accountant on the um, American version of The Office. I think his name is Brian Bumgardner, but he was just riding in the back of a car like JFK. Uh, it's the only example I could come up with. But he's just waving to people. And I was like, this is weird. This is, for some people, this has been their Christmas experience their entire lives. They've just been on in Southern California, on the coast. They've had this vibe. This has just been their normal. It would be weird to them to come back to Detroit, to Michigan, where I'm from, and see what we do. Like, see the way the snow happens. And we have parades, too, but it's a whole different vibe, you know, a whole different vegetation and weather and it's and I was like it's just I was like I stepped into someone else's normal that was I think the most jarring thing um that's what I wonder about you know I, I I'm still new enough to the city that I'm currently living in that I don't actually know what normal feels like and I don't really have a sense of what normal feels like to people who live here and that's always always I'm kind of curious to get there Okay, I kind of went off on a tangent there. What the hell was I? Uh, um, 
Yeah. Anyway, uh, there's some interesting parallels to this, too. Um, if you had the details of where it is I was living in San Francisco versus the details of where it is that I'm living now, there are some striking similarities. Um, I have a little patio, like an outdoor patio, which is about the same size as the one that I had in San Francisco. And it overlooks a major road, exactly the way my one in San Francisco did. It overlooked King Street, which if you go a few blocks uh, to the left, it would lead you to the Embarcadero and you'd be walking along uh, San Francisco Bay and looking at the Bay Bridge. Here, you go out and you turn the other way, you turn to the right and a few blocks you're driving into a canyon. Um, there's this little stretch of road that goes through a canyon and there's actually a jogging trail that goes along the road for at least two or three miles into the canyon. Um, yeah. It is, um, well, I guess that doesn't mean it's the same thing. What I especially like about it is that I'm right across the street from a, a park. The interesting thing is, I, I remember I mentioned that if I ever returned to San Francisco, I would, if I was going to be a city guide, right now I hope that I could specialize in Golden Gate Park, because that's, interesting story of how that came to be. Um, but one of the designers who had a hand in developing that is a fellow by the name of Frederick Law Olmsted, who you may have heard of, but most people have not, which is strange because he, he probably changed the course of American culture more than most people would no. His heyday, well, first of all, Frederick Law Olmsted was a landscape architect. He was the landscape architect. He is called the father of landscape architecture. The, I believe the title and certainly the profession exists only because of him. He decided to do it. And then people realized, oh, you can do that for a living. You can make that a, a, a job. You can do that for your livelihood. So he had a hand in designing and building Central Park in New York City. Uh, also had a hand in, in Golden Gate Park, although I think there was another person who, he, he, he contributed, but I don't think he was the main guy. Uh, the Emerald Necklace in Boston. Um, too many to name, actually. Like, the thing is, he was operating in the mid-19th century, uh, mid to late 19th century. This is when these city parks came, started coming into existence. And this is a radical idea. The thing is, the idea that there's not enough green space around, like there's not enough nature around, was a problem that was fairly new to the 19th century. Suddenly there are very, very large urban areas where population density is very, very high and there is not greenery around. There's not guaranteed to be greenery around. And so his life was very much lived waging a, waging a kind of public and private campaign 
to set aside and design green space that would be appealing and essentially his his sentiment i've heard it expressed this way and i think he put it this way it's a paraphrase but it's to say it's not that people should you know take two weeks and go on vacation somewhere it's that you should try and make a place that has the elements of a vacation that are nice that they see every day so really their day-to-day life is enriched with the sense of you know something special a vacation so the whole idea of having a city park the idea of setting aside some green space and designing it to look like natural but actually have it be designed to be functional and designed to be aesthetically appealing um this is something that wasn't a given it wasn't as though the public said you know what we need to start saving green spaces people felt that way but frederick law olmstead was one of the main people who championed the idea and he he was very very good at designing uh parks now i can tell you when i fell in love with boulder it was my first visit three years ago in the summer i was walking west towards the rockies and i had no idea where i was going i do no research when i go to a small city like boulder i just say i'm going to walk the thing on foot until i find the stuff that's interesting and that's what i did kind of a random walk uh even that's an imprecise use of the technical definition of that term but i came at some point to a park a little green embankment uh that was kind of on an incline that sloped gently down to a creek and there was just people hanging out in this park and it was a sunny day not a cloud in the sky you could see the mountains um and i just took a seat and sat down on this little in this on this green field and uh it was nice i was like i really really like this and it kept going and so what i learned after moving here is that there is actually there is a park that frederick law olmstead actually had a hand in in designing in boulder and there's a little creek that comes out of the mountains it's boulder creek and it runs out of the mountains uh east uh down toward uh toward denver um through the city east to west mostly east to west and there is a park uh that is basically a long green snake that follows this creek so there's like stretches of city blocks that are just it's one long long park instead of like one square area uh like one square mile set aside or something like that. And so uh this is where people jog. Like you, you could just go on this trail and you follow the water and you're just walking um biking uh and it's very very nice. The nicest thing about it in my mind is that it's made for bikers and walkers, pedestrians. But the whole thing is that the company I work for is based in San Francisco and they have an office in Boulder. Now, the office for my company is on the other side of town, like completely on the opposite side of town from me. The reason I like Boulder is twofold. One, that's only five miles away. Two, this trail that runs along the creek, uh, that runs east. Um, 
And the trail itself, like the walking path, the biking path, it goes under streets. So you can actually go several blocks. Like you can go probably two or three miles without having to stop at all, probably longer. I think it's possible, though I haven't confirmed it. You could take that trail. I could bike that trail to my company's office five miles away, and I wouldn't have to stop at a single road. I'd just be going under roads the entire time. And of course, the area that's the park that Olmsted helped design is absolutely gorgeous. You know, that one uh, embankment that was overlooking the creek, that was just the start. I kept going and it just, it got better from there. It was absolutely gorgeous. And now I live right by there and that is where I um, very often exercise. It is fabulous. I love it. Um, yeah, I'm very, very happy to be stuck here for a year. The whole um, missing San Francisco, uh, I think I'll have an easy time dealing with that. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that is my update. That is me. That is where I have been. That is where I am going. Um, yeah. Yeah, that pretty much covers it. I think I will cut this off. I've actually enjoyed this. I've had a lot of fun talking this out. I forgot, I forgot how much I enjoy doing this and I'm not like doing it from my car um, <laughs> in the dead of winter. Uh, so maybe I'll see you again. But in any case, uh, I hope you are doing well. I hope you are staying ahead of the Delta and I hope that uh, it, things are normal for you now. Be well, take care of yourself and uh, yeah, you're stronger than you think you are. <laughs> I hope that uh, cheered you up. Uh, take care. Till next time, be well.